Hi, it's Brett Cowell, and this is the Total Life Complete Podcast. Today I'm here with Randy Mayu, speaker, leadership trainer, and business book guru. Welcome, Randy. I'm glad to be here. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Now, I hope sometimes today we might get uh, around the subjects of whether a book can change your life, uh, perhaps talk a little bit about social justice and uh, perhaps even about tennis if, we get, if we've got enough time. Okay. <laughs> so I want to start with the same question I ask all the guests, which is, uh, you know, you do so many different things. How do you introduce yourself at a party? I am, uh, among other things, I am a person who likes to read books and help people know what's in them. I'm a lifelong reader. And so the fact that I have done an event called the First Friday Book Synopsis has flowed, flows out of my love of reading books. And that's how I got started. So I am a business consultant. I'm a leadership trainer informed by the best business books. And then I also do the same kinds of presentations on issues of social justice, race, education, uh, diversity issues, those kinds of issues. Okay, so let's start with the first Friday book synopsis, because that's how our paths crossed originally. And uh, we were talking off mic a little bit earlier about how I found out about it. And uh, it was pretty hard not to find out. uh, You've been established, and I'll let you tell the story of it. But um, when I left my corporate job to to found a startup and and this podcast, and I wanted to network, and the same names and and suggestions came up again and again. And one was the the first Friday club. And despite the early starting hour, um, I, I went to the last one and was pleasantly you know enjoyed it and and we connected afterwards so do you want to talk a little bit about what that was and how it started carl crayer and i are the two people who uh, host the first friday book synopsis and we began in april of 1998 so we're in our 20th year and we have met every month uh pretty much without exception. I think one time we had a snow closure. It was ice and snow. Other than that, we've met every month uh, since April of 98. He reads a book. I read a book. We prepare multi-page handouts. They have gotten better in the years that we've been doing this. Our first years, I'm not sure I was as proud as I look back on that. Uh, we've developed, uh, we've evolved into, I think, a more comprehensive and, and thorough template that we use. We pick the best business books. We are not asking people to read them before they come. We read them for people. And we find the transferable principles and we share them. And we do it in a very fast pace there. The reason we meet, you mentioned that you're not wild about the early hour. We, we meet at 7 o'clock so that people can leave by 8, 10 and go to work. But when I am brought into a company or organization to do a longer presentation, I can spend up to an hour and a half on the content of one of these books. So that's kind of how we got started. So I, I know coming, having spent, you know, a couple of decades as a management consultant, reading these business books is, is kind of uh, occupational hazard, I came to call it. And I, I actually probably gave them up a while ago. A lot of people don't find enough time. So was that the motivation to start doing it? You, you kind of recognize a need that there's, a lot of great books out there and people just don't have the time to read as much as they would. Um, I'd like to say yes, but it might have been the second reason. The main reason was that I like to read and I like an outlet to share what I've read. And so we came up with this system, this idea that maybe others would like to get in on what we've learned. But we certainly have learned. And in fact, the research is clear. The average college, graduate, 
American male in the United States reads less than one full book a year. So people don't read. There, now, there are people who read a lot of books, but, but I've got a personal theory. If someone is 30 years old and they're not yet reading books, they're probably never going to be reading books. And yet, plenty of people wish they knew what were in what was in these books. So we read them, say this is what's in them, and give them the key transferable, usable principles. And we felt like there was a market for that, and there there is. Yeah, so th this has been going, I think, for as long as my entire first phase of my career has gone. <laughs> I started in 1998 in consulting, and and obviously there's there's still a market for it now. And I, I, have the books changed over this time? You know, what were the topics then and, and now? And are business books getting better or worse? Uh, th that's a terrific question. Uh, my first comment is that in one sense, the themes continue. Uh, and the themes kind of fall into two or three major categories. How do you make an organization profitable? How do you keep an organization healthy? How do you make a person more productive? So in one sense, I'm willing to bet that I could take any book over the 20 years and find the slot to put them in. On the other hand, they have gotten better. The writing is better. There are better writers now writing business books. Uh, I think of the, the quality of writing from people like Malcolm Gladwell and Charles Duhigg. These are terrific writers. They're journalists. They're, they're marvelous storytellers. And so when they, when they write a story, it is an engaging story. There are plenty of business books. I, I, I say it this way to my wife. I don't want to read it. I want to have read it. I, I don't want to go through the process of reading it. It's a boring read. It's an academic read. Many business books, you can almost get the whole point by reading the foreword, the introduction, and the conclusion. And everything else is a little bit of fleshing out. But that's happening less often. Uh, the last few months, the books I've read have been engaging and comprehensive, and, and I'm, I'm glad I've read, and I do read every word of every business book that I present in, in my synopses. Um, but I'm glad that I'm reading the books. So uh, the one I did this past month, The Attention Merchants by Tim Wu, it was absolutely captivating. He is a terrific writer. So, um, yeah, they've gotten better. They've gotten better. But in general, they deal with the same themes and big questions that they've dealt with all along. That's my view. Okay. No, very good. So there's been this dynamic of different ways to publish, you know, not only self-publishing but blogs and LinkedIn articles and all those other sort of things. And I wonder if that's changed the expectations of the users out of the of business books and and what the value what is value in getting these key messages and just for an example you can go on to an online book seller and you can look at the comments and quite quite often the low starred ratings of people saying this shouldn't be a book this should be a blog article you know what's That's going right. on there's a lot of that and and probably i need to talk about how we choose our books we don't choose self-published books we don't choose books that are, that are Kindle only. Uh, we choose what we would call either a current or a former or a potential genuine bestseller. 
And uh, there are lots of different best-selling lists out there. The one that I use personally most uh, that ha- seems to have the most credibility is the New York Times monthly business book bestsellers list. So if now if you're asking me, have I read a fair number of books that are not all that written, all that well written? The answer is yes. And my Kindle app is filled with sample pages of books that somebody said, check this out. I did. Uh, I'm not going to name these, but it's barely worth checking out. Um, has it changed? The best books are still published by the best publishers, by well-known publishers. I know because of what I've read about the process that they have good editors and generally good fact checkers. So um, these are legitimate and responsible books that we choose for First Friday Book Synopsis. I know that you've done some work on your, your bubble charts that I'll, I'll post in the show notes and link to that. Um, you know, because one of my kind of observations is always you can read all these books on kind of seemingly disparate topics, but but how do you actually get sustainable benefit out of that? And to answer that, I think, you know, everything comes back to a framework. And if you can kind of slot that in mentally to a problem you have or a part of your leadership or personal management arsenal that you is going to be strengthened by this book, you're going to get a lot more out of the book. One of the problems in business books is, and, and this has been written about, it's called the halo effect. In fact, there, there's a book by Jeffrey Pfeffer called Leadership BS. And he teaches at Stanford. He's a, a very sharp writer. And he basically says, we have spent massive amounts of money. We have published numerous books. We've had seminars and workshops. And overall, the level of leadership has gone down. It has not gone up. It's all leadership BS. Well, the halo effect basically argues that a good writer will find some company, some leader, some organization that has done something well, and then they go study it and say, oh, look, here are the principles that were used there. Now go and do likewise. And the problem is that you can look at what Steve Jobs did and you don't have Steve Jobs. You know, you can look at what so-and-so did and you don't have that person. There are some books that are remarkably useful, practicable. That's a word I did not know before I started reading these books. And a a book that I did recently by Kim Scott. Uh, Kim Scott is a former uh, high-up person within Google, worked major processes at Apple. And her book is called Radical Candor. And she has a step-by-step process on what a manager does in interactions with people to help them get better at what they do. It was the most useful book I've read in a decade on leadership because it was so practicable. And reading it, I have started giving myself radical candor. So the book was valuable to me. Um, All right, delicate here. There are wonderful speakers, motivational speakers, who are motivating, but you walk away and, and you've been motivated, now what? Going from being motivated to knowing what to do is tougher. 
Um, a, a whopping bestseller in the last six months is Tim Ferriss's book, Tools of Titans. He wrote The 4-Hour Workweek and The 4-Hour Chef, and he's, he's a wild man. And Tools of Titans is his podcast. Uh, they are the guests from his podcast, and he's had 100 million downloads. And, and so T Tim Ferriss has taken the practicable, applicable, actionable, that's the word he uses, actionable items from these podcasts. Here's something tangible. I now get out of bed every morning, and I do 20 push-ups before I do anything else. I got that from that book. The book says, do some reps first thing in the morning. That's not your exercise. That's to get the juices flowing so you're not groggy in the morning. It has made a difference for the better. I'm not a young guy. I'm in my 60s. But that little step has made me more productive early in the morning. And I got that out of a wonderful book. So that's an idea for some of that. So uh, this brings me to the next question. Uh, can a book change your life? I'm a little more hesitant about that. Um, I know that, th that that's something that we like to talk about. Can a book change your life? Can listening to a speaker change your life? There are skills you can learn that can change your life. There are ideas that you can learn that can change your life. But I'm a pretty big fan of what we know as the 10,000-hour rule. Uh, Malcolm Gladwell wrote about it in Outliers, but it actually was started by Anders Ericsson. And he's got a book called Peak. And he's, he learned the kind of work it requires. You have to put in X number of hours, and it's around 10,000 to master anything. But if you read his book, what he's really saying is you don't get better at anything without working at it with purposeful practice that is deliberate purposeful practice for the purpose of getting better at what you do. And so does a book change your life? No. Can reading a book lead you to make a decision that can put your life on a better trajectory? Yes. Um, we're sitting in a building having this uh, interview that is connected to a nonprofit and a church. Well, if you know anything at all about preaching, few sermons change a life, but listen to enough sermons over the long haul and you'll begin having a tra trajectory for your life that is for the better. Mm -hmm. So those are some of my thoughts on that. This is kind of a reinforcement or a stacking effect. There's different terms that people use to say, repeating those same things. You, you, I think you said uh, yourself said last week in the summary that you know we need to hear something seventeen times now to act That's right. on it. That's that right. I, I thought it used to be three times, and maybe due to inflation and, and fragmentation, it's gone up to yeah, yeah. That's a, lo a lot of times, but for sure. Um, so I want to talk about you now something you alluded to. Now, um, can a book change your life? But there's this thing about mastery, and it's certainly something that is I'm experiencing in my life as a, as a way to, to live. Um, mastery and excellence, and there's various other words that are associated with it. As a mindset, rather than reading something in, in a book, you know, can the, the book or other stories help give you an attitude of mastery that you can then use to go forward and apply in your own way through life, which is 
um, to give another concrete book example, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, Habit One was about being proactive. That's the first self-help book I ever right. read, um, being proactive. And that is, as far as anything, not just the, the term we hear today, being proactive about you know, taking out the trash, but, you know, it's an attitude to life where you determine your destiny and the results you get out of. And I think mastering other terms that are useful as a life philosophy. You know, what Stephen Covey did in Seven Habits is he took ancient principles and he said, let me put them in seven phrases. So it's not that you learned to be proactive. It is that he gave you a handle to hang that on. And it's very good. You know, it's, it's, it's very good. And you're right. And, and there are a multitude of books that in one way or another say, be proactive. And, and I'm a fan of that concept. And if you don't take the action, if you are not proactive, then things aren't going to happen. So that one's pretty clear. Um, backing up, do books change your life? In many books, but Tools of Titans was a good one for this, Tim Ferriss asked everybody, what book have you read that had an impact on you? And I'm thinking about, I'm not fully set in cement, but I'm thinking about doing some extra sessions under the umbrella of First Friday Book Synopsis on what I might call the great books, where I do a synopsis of a book that, that enough people have talked about and a whole lot of people out there say, man, I should have read that and I never did, or I read it back in my college days and totally forgot it. So the first book I would do if I did this, and I'm leaning towards this, is Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. Mm -hmm. um, I, how many people know about that book but haven't read it? Um, I think about the, the, the really provocative book by Sigmund Freud called Civilization and Its Discontents. Um, a premise that is so profound, and yet most people, if they did read it, they don't remember it, or they've heard about it, but they've never read it. So that's uh, something that I'm playing with, but I have not yet decided. In that sense, there are books that I have read that the concept has lingered for a lifetime. Mm -hmm. Man's Search for Meaning is one. Civilization and Its Discontents is another. Uh, a Christian book that I read, Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. There is a, a principle specifically in that book that I have never forgotten, and I believe it has shaped all sorts of my thinking. So those are some examples of a book that have had, if not changing your life, lingering effects on your life. Well, and I, I wondered... How much of that is the art of the writer and the clarity of the writer and, um, and how much when a book does change your life is that it's the right book at the right time for you <laughs> in your stage of life. But here's, here's something that happens. Somebody has a book that really affects them in a, in a very positive way. Then they want all of their friends to be affected in the same way by that book. And, and what I have come to understand is books and readers have relationships and, and, and I am okay if I recommend this book with great passion to you and you say to me, it didn't do it for me. And, 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 and I've surely had to say that to people that, that have told me about how great a book is and I've read it and I've said it didn't do it for me and they get so disappointed. But, but it's like art, and in fact, you know, the old line from Aristotle, rhetoric is the art of finding the available means of persuasion. One person looks at Picasso 
and says, great art. And the other person says, I don't get it. I don't get it. One person listens to music and says, great music. And the other person says, no, I don't get that. So books are art. And, and so people have reactions that are very personal to books. So that's a comment. No, I like the, uh, the idea of uh, the relationship there and maybe a concept of matchmaking <laughs> to, yeah. to people. In the book, 11 Rings, Phil Jackson, great coach. I learned that he would give every one of his players a book at the beginning of a season. Not the same book. He would give each player a book that he chose for that player. So that tells you two things about Phil Jackson. Number one, he knew books, plural. Number two, he knew his players as individuals. So he could match book to player. And some of the players would read the book. Some of them, he described it, would literally toss them in the trash can. But they knew that he had picked out a book for them. And that um, he's the only coach with 11 rings. You know, so, so it's, it's pretty amazing. And, and, and he understood that books and people have to be matched really well. I like that about him. I have to ask you, so what is your favorite book of all time that you've reviewed or inside or outside? The Grapes of Wrath. That's my favorite book of all time. If, if people ask me what's the greatest book you've read, it, it's The Grapes of Wrath. Um, that's, of course, fiction, but it is drenched in insight. I don't read much fiction, and I need to, and that's one of my regrets. But when you try to get to that question, what's the most, you know, the, the greatest book, um, there is not a greatest business book, in my view. We have to ask, what's the best book about blank? So I, I can fill in mm. some blanks. What's the, if, if you only had time to read one book on time management, what do you read? You read Getting Things Done by David Allen. That's the Bible on time management. If you had only one book to read on leadership, boy, it's tougher. You know, it's tougher. Number one, and, and by the way, I haven't read all the books on time management. I haven't read all the books on leadership. I'm fairly well read. I know a guy who reads far more than I do, but I'm fairly well read compared to many. But at the moment, if you ask me, what are the few books to read on leadership? My list is this list. 11 Rings by Phil Jackson, a great leader. Extreme Ownership by Jocko Willink and Leif Babin, two former Navy SEALs, whopping bestseller. Encouraging the Heart by Kuzas and Posner. And now I'm adding Radical Candor by Kim Scott. If you ask me what's the number one book on quality, you know, aiming for high quality. It's got to be The Goal by, and I never remember how to say his name, Elihu Goldthwait. I'm not sure that I'm saying that correctly. Mm -hmm. uh, I think if you're dealing with, you know, quality and, and the Six Sigma type arena, you ought to read The Goal. Um, if you ask, what's the book to read to just make sure you're aiming at getting better at your organization, at your processes, at your own productivity. There is a new, relatively new book that I'm very high on, and it's called Smarter, Faster, Better by Charles Duhigg. He wrote The Power of Habit. So, um, so there are, if, if you give me a category, if you say, what's the best book about blank, uh, I can tell you what's the most useful book that I've read about that. And I generally have a book for each category you can name. 
So now, same thing with social justice. Uh, if you ask me what's the book to read on race relations in the United States, well, I got to have two. I've got to have um, between, uh, uh, it's ta Coates' book. I think it's Between the World and Me. It's a great book. And then there's a new book by, uh, by um, Kendi, X. Kendi. He's a professor, and it's called Stamped from the Beginning. And it is a terrific book on race relations. So I've got books within categories and including within mega categories. You know, I, I can give subcategories to business books and subcategories to social justice. Um, anyway, I could keep going on like that, but I've got other examples. I do want to come to social justice in a second. Um, so the goal, picking that as a book, and that that's something that that a lot of management consultants and others uh, have, uh, have, might have read, and people in operations. The message of the book is embedded in a story, and I, you know we hear a lot about storytelling. I, I spend almost my whole day talking about storytelling yeah. in their own lives, about charities, about business, about everything. Everyone wants to know how to do it, and and. There seems to be quite a lot of misuse and abuse of storytelling as well. So what's the potential of storytelling in books, but also in our society? Is it? Okay, i got to be cautious here. Um, the goal is what I call a parable book. Uh, you know, the whole book is an imaginary story. Uh, Five Dysfunctions of a Team, uh, which is the book on, on making sure your team is functional. That's a parable. It's not that I'm not wild about that. But I think it has been maybe overused a little. And in general, uh, like in Five Dysfunctions of a Team, at the end of each portion of the story, they get to the principles. I like the principles better than the story. I'm more of a fan of, how do I use this phrase, the real stories. So the kinds of stories that are told in biographies like Isaacson on Steve Jobs, I, I'd rather read the story about what happened, and, and, and it's a real story. That's me. There are plenty of people who write those stories poorly, and so when you find somebody who's good at it, like Walter Isaacson, like Charles Duhigg, um, like Kim Scott in this book, Radical Candor. She's a remarkably good storyteller. Um, when you can find somebody who can tell a real story, and, and sometimes they say, now this is what you do with this story, and sometimes they just leave it there, and you have to decide on your own. I like that better. Frank Luntz, he's a Republican uh, communication consultant, and forget your politics, he knows what he's talking about when it comes to communication. Frank Luntz um, says that you need to remember that all stories have a beginning, a middle, and an end. And my view is that too many stories start and end in the middle. They don't give a beginning. They don't give an ending. And, and by the way, that's what happens with speeches. Speeches need, uh, in the words of a, of a professor at University of Southern California, Tom Hollihan, a, a good speech has to arouse the audience. You have to hook the audience. And then at the end, you have to fulfill what you've aroused. You've given them what you promised. And so arouse and fulfill. Good storytelling, beginning, middle, and end. Work hard on the beginning. 
Oh my goodness. That's the hardest part in my view is the beginning. When you were going to college, et cetera, did you anticipate that you might end up being a leadership trainer? I spent 20 years in ministry. So I was a preacher. And when I ended up leaving my denomination and leaving preaching, um, I had always been a reader. If, if you were to read my LinkedIn page, it would say something like this. I started with comic books. Then I went to the Hardy Boys. And then I went to Nero Wolf. And then I went to more subst substantive uh, nonfiction books, etc. I've always been a reader. And so I'm a reader and a speaker. I was a reader and a preacher. So I've always known that I would read and speak. Uh, I don't know where that first came from. Certainly in my high school years, I, I had a sense of this. And, and I love speaking. And I would hate speaking without having an equal amount of time of continuing to read. Uh, the greatest invention in history, I say with a smile, is the iPad. Because I can pause the TV, read my paragraph. I am reading books on Kindle all the time. I'm reading serious essays all the time. Um, the fact that I can have the Kindle anywhere or the iPad anywhere has been just a terrific boon to someone like me who wants to keep learning. For a lifelong learner, uh, it's far better than a cell phone. That's too small a screen. This is just right. Farhad Manju is the New York Times technology writer. And he says the iPad is an input device. It's not output. You don't use it to type. You input with it. And, and, and that's how I use it. I lean back in my easy chair and, and I'm reading my iPad. And, and the only time I put it down is when there is a compelling, engaging drama on television. But if a game is on television, I'm reading my iPad. Yeah, so, so we talked earlier about a, a, a book being a relationship, you, you, like a relationship. Does the device, the way you consume that or you interact with that, is that different if it's a paper book or, uh, or an iPad or Kindle or such? I'm like so many others who said, I'll never not read on paper. Uh, I've got friends who say, I'll never do that. I was an, a, an, an immediate and now adamant convert to the Kindle app on the iPad. Uh, there are a lot of reasons for it. One of the reasons is I can underline with my finger, highlight, and then all of my highlights are available to copy and paste into a Word document. For a guy like me, you saw my handout at First Friday Book Synopsis, you know I include a few pages of excerpts from the book, The Best of Randy's Highlights. That's valuable. It has a search feature. If I can remember a phrase, I can find it. In the old days, I would write in the margins. And I do miss writing in the margin. You know, I would remember where to find something in the book because I'd remember the look of my writing on the right-hand margin about a third of the way through the book. I would remember stuff like that. Now, this is bizarre, I remember that in my handouts for my synopses. I remember, oh yeah, that's at the bottom of the page and I read that quote. Uh, but has it changed? Yes. But the pluses of digital far outweigh the minuses. I can get on an airplane and I can have 15 books in my lap. 
I can read the sample pages or I can do the deeper dive while I fly. And by the way, the best place to read is airplane mode on a plane. Nothing else can distract you. So, I think well, there's a lot of us that are, that travel a lot for work, or, or certainly had done um, that appreciate airplane mode, and 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 probably are not that that wild about Wi-Fi on planes and other things because you know I think if you don't have any time that you can actually reflect and, and to engage in something without being distracted every few seconds, then yeah, it's either life is worse off as a result um, of not being able to do that. So. No, I, I find that. I, I think for, for books, I um, was very much of the school of, of treating books as a, as a sacred thing that would be, uh, and I mean that in the sense of a precious thing that is, uh, I'd read a book and it would look still as if it had just come out of the, the bookshop. I didn't underline. And then I think I, I went across an invisible line where I wanted to, 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 to mark and write in the books and really yeah. get the most out of them. And I think that's an important thing to do. Um, and, you know, Kindle and others um, make that very easy. And I, I just was thinking the other day, is this really changing the way that I'm reading the book? Because I'm not reading the whole thing through. I'm kind of reading it in small chunks and highlighting mm -hmm. that later on. Then to go back and reread all of the highlights that I've got. And yeah. I'm not sure what the, whether that's better or worse or more quicker. or. No. Um, I will say this. Uh, in the books, I think it's... Uh, I've read enough books that I don't always remember where I read what, but I, I'm pretty sure in Smarter, Faster, Better by Duhigg, he talks about the discovery that people taking notes on a screen, a laptop, do not remember as well as people who take notes on paper. And so the first Friday book synopsis, um, you were there. Everybody in the room has the multi-page handout. And I am very directive. Turn to page three, look at quote number 18, write this in the margin. I mean, I am very directive. And my conviction is that when people engage pen, paper, mind, they remember better. And so um, in that sense, reading on digital is not as good, but I, I highlight constantly. I occasionally write in the note feature. I don't find that as... as um, is easy to use. I'd, I w I'm waiting for, for Jeff Bezos to find a way to write in the margin digitally. That would be fun. Um, but, but yeah, I, I'm, I'm a fan of Duhigg's. He didn't discover it. He, he quoted the, the, the research that said it, that people remember better using pen and paper than they do using a screen. And I think that was interesting. Well, certainly, I, I, I find that so, and, and um, you know, there's there's something about probably genetic that that, that is is there, but I think um, in adult education and how people learn, you know, people learn from um, experience and then and from stories about others' experience. You know, they're That's the right. most powerful ways of doing it, and and perhaps some way by by getting the pen and writing something down, you you're having an experience that engages a different part of your brain. There's and probably this, a book about that as well, and, and this is a problem. Uh, one of the great books I ever read was The World's Great Letters. And, and I just did a, a vacation where we went to the museums of the civil rights movement. So we went to Atlanta and Birmingham and Selma and Montgomery. And there are all sorts of handwritten letters from people, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. and others, about what was happening in the civil rights movement. There will never be a book on the world's great tweets 
or the world's great emails. Uh, we're losing something by people not writing letters by hand. So that's a sadness to me. But I, I'm, count me in. I don't write letters by hand. I send emails. So, and bad ones. Bad ones. What are the keys of, yeah. of being a good communicator? And is it different yeah. for digital? Well, um, very simply, if you have something to communicate, we start there. Um, Aristotle had some canons of communication, and two of his five were invention and delivery. And I summarize these this way. Invention is have something worthwhile to say, and delivery is deliver it very well, speak it very well, say it very well. Uh, we, we live in an era in which sometimes we put more emphasis on the delivery than we do the message. And I think that's a mistake. But it is an equal mistake to have a great message and deliver it poorly. So these are equal needs. Have something worthwhile to say. Say it very well. Now, you're asking me to give you keys, and it's, it's a full-day seminar to get you started. But when you, when you try to have something worthwhile to say, you research well, you edit down, and you get to the essence. And until you get to the essence, until you can say what you need to say in a sentence or two, you're not ready. And then you flesh it out. Uh, on delivering it well, uh, I'm, I'm back to this arouse and fulfill. You've right, got right. to hook your, your listener or reader very quickly. And then at the end of the process, you've delivered what you promised. So when I teach this, I say, what's the greatest beginning of all time? Once upon a time. Ooh, now I get to hear a story. Although I might argue that the current greatest beginning is a long time ago in a galaxy far, <laughs> far away. And what's the greatest ending? And they lived happily ever after. And that tells you the story's finished and it ended the way you wanted it to. So um, those are some thoughts on communication. But, but I will tell you that getting the words right in the right order and only the right words and no words that shouldn't be there is a very demanding process. Because it's, it's, it's interesting that, that, that um, so very good. So, so it's interesting to see that, you know, you could get into what's the purpose of communication and, and is, does stream of consciousness have a value in itself? It's communication, I guess, because a message or something is going out there. And, and you have to ask what are the purposes of communication? You know, you would not want the first officer and the pilot in the plane that landed in the Hudson River to have a stream of consciousness communication. Chesley Sullenberger famously said, my controls, because the first officer had been flying. And, and that's pilot speak for, I'm going to fly right now. Is that okay with you? And the first officer said, your controls, which means I'm relinquishing, you've got it, you're flying now. So the old textbooks on communication are you need the sender and the receiver, and did the receiver receive the message? So stream of consciousness is a different kind of communication. When you get into that, when you get into great fiction and great stream of consciousness, you're talking about a different kind of communication than the average business communication, the average non uh, fiction communication in some sense. So, you know, is that valuable? Wildly valuable. Different than what I do.
Yeah, it's it's uh, well, you mentioned Tim Tim Ferriss, right? And just pick him as an example that a lot of people know. The best practice, if I can put it that way, in in building a business, a personality led business, is to tell people what you're having and what your dog's doing, all that mm-hmm. sort of stuff. Now that that's clearly communicating something, and and maybe it's allowing an intimacy to the reader that you don't get from this, uh, from some books that are written in this kind of nondescript vacuum of the world where facts are coming out, you know, a business book or whatever. This is very much tied to that person and their journey through their day or whatever. Right. And I think, will that evolve into something else? I mean, I, I, I can't, it's different purposes for communication, I, I guess so. But it's, it's, it's very interesting to see how, um, you know, I'm not getting a list of bullet points coming through my email yeah. from people that are, have made the leap into this new era of, of communication. They seem to be if you took all of their uh, personal updates out and just left the facts, it would seem pretty, pretty cold or old fashioned, I guess. Um, and I'm, I'm fairly saddened at the shorter attention span of the era. You know, people are not willing to invest the time in lengthier reading. And so, um, you know, my, uh, I, I believe that you can get great help from great essays but I want a full essay length. Uh, essays by Atul Gawande. Uh, by the way, everybody ought to read Personal Best by Atul Gawande. It's a wonderful essay. Essays by Malcolm Gladwell. Uh, the great essays by David Halberstam. And so, so I'm, uh, you know, I'm not a fan of, of let's reduce it down. Even though I said let's, let's get it down to one or two sentences. That's your starting point. You want to be clear, but you want time to flesh it out. So this uh, Twitter era of 140 characters is, is at times a little frustrating, even though I tweet constantly. Okay, so let, let's get on to, uh, to social justice then. What social justice to you? Because it's, it's a term that a lot of people use, particularly in the US that I don't necessarily hear elsewhere. Um, so what, what is it and what's your, what drives you to this? All right. Tell me the question. So, so what, is, what is social justice in terms of... Okay, what is social justice? Okay, that's, that's, that's a big question. Um, I'm sadly persuaded, and, and, and I'm, I'm very sad about this, that the history of humankind is my group is better than your group. And, and so in America, it's white supremacy. But, but it's not just white supremacy. It's my group is better than your group. So if you study our history, Jewish people came over. They were not treated acceptably, well, equally. Uh, Polish people, Italian people, Hispanic people, black people, of course, were brought as slaves in the beginning. Um, social justice means uh, Martin Luther King Jr., in the last speech of his life, delivered on April 3rd, 1968, uh, it's called I've Been to the Mountaintop. It has the greatest line I've ever read. He said, all we're asking is that America be true to what it says on paper. Social justice is being true to what we say on paper. So if education is important, everybody deserves a good education. If, I believe, I'm giving you my bias here, that health care is a right. That, that people, when they are ill, need to be treated for their illness. And, and the history of America is a history of white supremacy, 
another kind of supremacy, and that is not social justice. Social justice is removing that blight and, and getting closer to the idea that we are true to what we say on paper. So justice, you know, I, I, again, this is a business discussion, but, but the idea of justice comes out of what Christians call the Old Testament prophets. And uh, Amos is, is one of my favorites on that. And he talks about um, that God is saying, I will not accept your worship until the poor are treated well. I think that's right. So those are some thoughts about social justice. And I've done a book a month, synopsis of a book a month in social justice for 12 years, not as long as the business books, First Friday book synopsis, but 12 years every month. I'm doing one today's Tuesday. I'm doing one this Thursday. It's an interesting comment, and I, I know, and I hope that the, the listeners here will, will be broad enough minded to to uh, see that business is a part of life and society. Um, so, but to, to say, look, you know, there's kind of a business discussion here, and then the social justice. I mean, but what's the interplay? Are they two separate realms, or are they really part of the same thing? Yeah, that's, now, insightful question. They shouldn't be two separate rooms. And and I believe, uh, although, okay, now. Here's the bad news. There are really nice people who are servant leaders who I would not hire to run my company. They don't produce results. And there are really giant jerks that I would hire my company because they produce results. If, 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 if you're a city and you've got potholes, you want somebody to fix the potholes. Now, is it nicer to have nice leaders who are servant leaders who create teams that everybody's glad they're part of it? Yes, but if the team is not fixing the potholes, you don't have a good leader and you don't have a good team. And so um, there is no connection. I don't like what I'm saying here. Mm -hmm. There is no connection between nice people, social justice, treating people equally and producing the results that are sometimes needed in business. Um, I believe that there are examples of servant leaders who had great results. And I believe there are examples of jerks who had great results. Um, I think of, um, I think of Herb Kelleher, Southwest Airlines. He might've been a profane man. He liked to cuss and he liked to drink, but he loved his people. He was a servant leader. He would put on a Santa Claus outfit and he would toss luggage on Christmas Eve at the airport with his baggage handlers. They would walk through walls for that guy. And, and, and he served his people. I call that social justice. I call that treating people right. That, that's treating people equally. Um, whereas, um, you know, I know people who are that nice but didn't produce the results he did. So those are some thoughts about that. But do, do they overlap? Yes. But, but turning a bad person into a nice person, which is not easy, doesn't mean they'll get results. So, so, so the, the, the issue of business is what is the proof that you have succeeded? And if you go out of business because you have no profits, you have not succeeded. My preference is and, 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 and the people who study servant leadership, servant leadership was coined by Robert Greenleaf. The, the people who study servant leadership say, no, no, servant leadership is you treat people right and you produce the results. 
I think that's correct. And, and when you get them both, you've got the ideal. There's, uh, you know, a, a lot of talk about uh, conscious capitalism and mm -hmm. um, corporate social responsibility and these things. And I think that, that's, to not be cynical, that that's an attempt to engage the communities that businesses operate in and, and, and say, look, there's more goals uh, than, than just profit if you're living within a, you have to be interdependent with the yeah. society that you're part of. We are all at the mercy of forces bigger than, than us. Um, conscious capitalism, uh, the container store, uh, the, the Kip Tyndall, the, the CEO of the container store is a firm believer and a part of the conscious capitalism movement. I'm a fan of that, but the day will come, you know, let's pretend, and I'm just going to use this as a quick illustration, pretend that research in motion was the greatest conscious capitalism company in history. When the iPhone hit, the Blackberry was finished. It took a few years to have the burial, but it was finished. And, and, and in, in an era of disruption, you can have a, a company following the principles of conscious capitalism and a disruptive technology can come along and put them out of business overnight. So that's the reality of this era. So that's an interesting problem. So, so let's maybe talk, talk about Dallas for a, a little bit um, as well, just in terms of how this, how, how do you describe D Dallas to people that have never been here? How would you describe it? Well. In terms of it, how it, it works and yeah, the type of people it, you, you might You can't be in here. Dallas without loving the Cowboys. <laughs> um, it's way too hot. It is a community that is blind to the poverty because the poverty is immense in Dallas. Um, the social justice book club that I do, the Urban Engagement Book Club, is, is sponsored by City Square, which started as Central Dallas Ministries, which started as a little food pantry. It's a large nonprofit. They just can't keep up with the need, and they're doing a great job. Um, but Dallas is business. You know, the business of Dallas is business. And there's a wonderful book by Lawrence Wright, who uh, won the Pulitzer for the Looming Tower about Al-Qaeda. Uh, but an early book about growing up in Dallas called In the New World, Growing Up with America, 1960-1984. He lived in Lakewood in Dallas. Um, he, he described in that book how Dallas, and you'd have to know a little Texas and a little Dallas to know this, but how Dallas ended up with the centennial celebration, which became the buildings of Fair Park. Dallas had nothing to do with the origins of Texas. It did not belong here. But the business people of Dallas walked into the governor's office and made it a financially smart choice to bring that to Dallas. The business of Dallas is, is business. And, um, and, and you got to understand that about Dallas. It's, it cares about business. No, I, 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 I think that's spot on. And it's, it's interesting given our discussion about business and social justice that you can see such a business capital and with so much poverty, yet so many charities that are doing so much good work. And, you know, I just I think why is that? Uh, you know, and a lot of great minds and, and good educational institutions as well. I'm constantly astounded by that. What's the missing link in there to 
to be, you know, if you can't make social justice work here, then. Well, and, and, and I want you to know that I believe deeply in this issue, but I'm also, I, I've got a lot of background and understanding it. And, and Martin Luther King Jr. in the speech, I Have a Dream, talked about the lonely island of poverty in the midst of a vast ocean of material prosperity. He wasn't talking about Dallas, but he was absolutely talking about Dallas. It is an American city reality. Uh, and if you study the building of the highways and the building of the freeways and the building of the overpasses and the, and the legalization of segregation with housing restrictions, um, we built the cities to be cities of inequality. And there's some interesting new books about that that, uh, that I'm delving into at the moment. So this is, uh, you know, it's not a mystery. Rich people of a certain color want their communities kept their way. And they don't want anybody else to come and lower them. And, and I don't say that with any kind of ugliness. The history backs that up. And that's true in Dallas and other cities also. So there's a structural element to, to the city planning that kind right. of embeds some of these social problems. But at the same time, we look around and see gentrification, which might be just yeah. relocation in another, in another term. If we look around, um, Dallas is growing up. And, and, and there are people who are well-motivated, who try to do the right thing, but that doesn't mean they're smart enough to know what the right thing is. And, 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 and I'm not implying that I'm smart enough to know what the right thing is. Um, we're having to learn this as we go. But I think a starting point to remember is there are some people who want to keep other people down. We need to remember that. So that's my, that's my little sermon for you. Just on, on a, a, a more positive note for, for the listeners here, and I, I think, you know, for folks interested in getting the most out of life, reaching their, their personal and professional goals and p potentially giving back, you know, what are, what are your messages from, you know, I'm going to put it this way and don't be offended at all, on your, your tombstone, <laughs> what are your three bullet points of advice that you want to give to people about how to live yeah. life? Keep aiming to get better. Treat people with love and kindness and never be arrogant. That's, that's great advice to live by. I need, I need to write those down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But. Well, you know, we'll, be, we'll uh, be putting the transcript up on the, on the, the website. So you, you heard it here first, okay. folks. And, okay, so let's, let's get into just current projects in, in our last few minutes together here. How, how can people find you and, you know, being inspired and interested to follow up with you? How can they get in touch? Um, I blog regularly on our, we have one website that has a blog tab and other tabs. And uh, it is 1515, 15minutebusinessbooks.com. And if you go to that website, you'll see which two books we're going to be presenting at next month's First Friday Book Synopsis. You'll find me blogging about books on social justice as well as business. And so you'll find links to the Urban Engagement Book Club on social justice. You, when we present our synopses at First Friday Book Synopsis, you can purchase those synopses. What you get with it is the PDF of the handout. That is exactly what people get when they come to the public event. And then you also get an audio recording, MP3, of what we said. And when I say we, I do one book and a colleague named Carl Crayer does the other. And so there are 18, it's not quite 15 minutes, they are 18 to 22 minutes uh, in length. 
And so you can listen to me uh, as I give the synopsis. It is ideal. You can listen while you drive, but it's all ideal if you follow along on the handout. That, that way, in 20 minutes, you'll get a lot of the book. And then, um, you know, you can find ways to contact me. And if you've got an organization that wants to take a deeper dive into a, a leadership principle from a, a good business book, give me a call. Sounds good. Any other final words for the listeners? Um, final words. There's always the next good book to be reading. Get it and read it. Keep learning. There's always the next good thing, new thing to learn. Keep learning. Keep reading. Don't stagnate. That's my final word. That's great. Thank you for having me. Th thanks, Randy Moe, for, for joining us today. All right, and for listeners, you can download the transcript of today's conversation at www.totallifecomplete.com.